Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us on this 18th of April, 2010, just after 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, I have a, a tiny intro, but uh, I will, of course, defer to, to questions. So in some places in Texas, they're thinking of bringing back paddling for, uh, for children. Uh, and um, some, uh, some people are sort of saying this is a bad thing, of which, of course, I would be one of them. Uh, and some people are saying this is a good thing. And it's very interesting uh, that uh, the people who say it's a good thing seem to have universally the same complaint about the children and what they hope that the uh, hitting of children is going to solve. And that problem that they talk about repetitively is the problem of a lack of respect. There's a lack of respect for their society. There is a lack of respect for their culture. There is a lack of respect for their elders and for authority figures in general. And that is a very interesting question. And the first question I would ask if um, my child or uh, is, is treating me with a lack of respect is to say, well, how am I doing? in terms of treating her with respect. And that, of course, would be an important and, I think, very illuminating question for the uh, people in Texas or around the world to ask and to say, how are we treating our children? For instance, have we run up massive national debts and mortgaged their futures after to domestic and foreign banksters? If yes, then you may not be considered to be treating them with great respect. That would be one uh, one thing that I would say. Uh, the other thing that I would say is, um, uh, have we done everything possible as a society to ensure that their education is engaging and positive and personal and uh, self-actualizing, and are we teaching them the skills to succeed in a 21st century economy, or are, st are we still bludgeoning them with boredom and uh, fear uh, while stuck in the teaching methods of the 19th century with a teacher squawking things up on a blackboard while children sit in dull rows like a box of eggs? And uh, if if we are, in fact, teaching them with 19th century brain-deadening methods rather than engaging them, then it may not be said that we are treating them with uh, with much respect. Oh, it's Texas, of course. So do we put mentally retarded uh, people who've been convicted of a crime to death? Well, yes, we do. Might that be said to be treating uh, people who are uh, helpless with respect? I would think not. Oh, wait, it's Texas as well, where a good majority of the nation's soldiers come from. So are we uh, lying to uh, kids about patriotism and the virtue of national service in order to get them to go and kill their souls and foreigners in unnecessary, brutal and illegal wars? Well, could that be considered treating them with respect? Oh, do we lie to them about religion uh, and not present our religion to them as just one of many mythologies in the world? Or do we just instead indoctrinate them that it is the one true faith and that Jesus died for their sins and they are guilty of original sin and blah, blah, blah? Is that treating them with respect? I think that it's important for people to look in the mirror, of course, before looking out uh, at others, particularly the vulnerable. And uh, I think that to place the blame upon the children for uh, feeling a lack of respect for those in authority is to miss a crucial possibility to reform authority. But, of course, that's not what authority is about. Authority is not about negotiation or reciprocity, but brute power and subjugation. And uh, I think kids understand that very, very well. Well, that's it for my um, my brief introduction. I am more than happy to entertain questions. If you um, if you have any comments or issues or problems or criticisms 
I will um, be happy to share my thoughts. You can type them into the chat window, or you can just unmute yourself, and uh, uh, we can um, we can hear you there. So please go ahead. I would like to talk to you, Seth. I'm Heiko from Germany. Hi. Can you? Ah, hi. Ah, <laughs> I finally made it <laughs> through. Um, yeah, I'm. My heart is beating. I'm uh, excited. I'm a little anxious. Yeah. Well, I'm very happy I, to be chatting with you. I know you've been listening or you've been around the conversation for a long time. So I'm very, very pleased to have an opportunity yeah. to to chat with you and what's uh, what's on your mind. Yeah, I um, I would like to um, to uh, give you some feedback about um, how my life changed uh, through um, FDR and. Um, but first, I want, um, for the record, I would like to um, um, come back to your, um, you, you once said uh, the sentence that the day has yet to come where a caller calls in that's, uh, who's older than you. And <laughs> okay, good, good. So what do we got arrived. The day has arrived. Oh, good to know. Good to know. I'm 44. I feel younger already. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, that relieves my anxiety to, to know that I'm older than you. <laughs> well, speak up, Sonny. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, of course, I'm I'm listening for about um, uh, more than uh, one and a half years. So maybe that's considered a long-time listener and a first-time caller. Um, yeah, um, I am a psychologist and I also studied philosophy. Um, but I didn't uh, get a degree, um, but I was in my 20s already interested in philosophy. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to tell something about how FDR impacts on a pretty well-prepared brain and in an old, stubborn brain. <laughs> um, I'm fascinated to hear. Please take your time. Yeah. Um, um, first, I discovered FDR through... Um, um, the, um, um, uh, through an interest in unschooling because I, I have two boys. One is 11 and the other one is 7. And when the older one um, approached uh, school age, um, I uh, um, got interested again in uh, questions of schooling. And then, and of course, I discovered that uh, schools are not so good for learning. And um, so I was around some uh, unschoolers in Germany, and one of them referred me to FDR. And so I was first, um, it was more of a political interest, um, because this was an anarchist, and so it's it's around uh, political topics. But soon I discovered that you also talk about uh, family stuff, relationship stuff, and psychology. And um, yeah, I I earn my money with it, and so I, that was very interesting for me too. And uh, I discovered that I was uh, very anxious about um, listening to podcasts about uh, defooing uh, topics and and foo stuff. Sure. Um, because I I felt that there was something that I didn't want to confront, and uh, but after a while I. Um, I uh, had enough courage um, 
to listen also also to these uh, podcasts. And I went into the relationship series, and uh, that ended in uh, that I uh, confronted um, the feelings uh, towards my father. My father, my mother is already uh, dead um, for several years. Uh, she had cancer, so that was not such an immediate um, concern. And uh, my father is still alive, so I had to, uh, ultimately to deal with the questions, uh, the question how about the relationship to my father is. And it turned out that I discovered a lot of hate um, uh, against him or directed at him. And, uh, well, I am already um, not in contact anymore with him for more than a year. And it has, t- has turned out to be a very good decision for me. And um, I, yeah, I've, 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 I'm so, I feel very much... Um, relieved to not have to deal with him anymore because I um, basically ran after him for 43 years and never never really um, managed to get into contact with him in a, at a deeper level. Oh, what do you mean? Uh, just uh, so I'm, I know what you mean. What do you mean by ran after him? Yeah, I, I, I well, um, the, uh, he basically uh, neglected uh, me as a child. He, he was not very much much of an active father, and I I couldn't get into contact with him. I, I uh, as long as as I remember, I I wanted to have um, contact with him, or I mean, contact in a psychological sense, a deep, meaningful um, relationship with him. And I often argued about uh, with him, and afterwards I tried to. Um, not argue, but um, well, be around him. I invited him for weekends and, and wrote him letters, and I never got a, a, a reaction that that really uh, connected with me. Right, Lira. Yeah. So that I think it's a very sad story, and it's it's terrible that it was that way. So when you said that you chased him. Um, I, you know, whenever I talk to someone whose experience is very different from mine, I, I always want to make sure that I, I get or try to get what, what they're going through. And I didn't chase my dad. Uh, my dad was, was very remote to me. And I didn't feel that there was a possibility for connection. And so I never chased him. Now you did. And did you do that because there was sometimes more connection or you felt that it was more possible or what was it that, that motivated the chasing? Yeah, I, that's that's a good question. I, I think, I mean, he was around in the household, and uh, of course there were um, family excursions, and he he would yeah he was around. He would talk to me, and um, I mean, as a child, I, I I would look look up to my father, and I wanted him to to uh, to like me and to uh, adore me, and so I would maybe bring up stuff. To him, and what he would do is uh, that he would find some fault in it, and so I would try harder um, to avoid his criticism, but um, then he would criticize something else, and so he 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 drew me into a um, a game, or not? An, it's not a game, uh, in, in, into that I I would try to to please him, and uh, he would criticize me again, and so he would put me down. So that that's what I mean with chasing. So I was trained to 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 serve him or to run after him, and he would always reject me. 
Do you know where that okay. habit came from in him? Do you know what, what it was in his history that may have influenced that approach, that the approach that he took? Yeah, I thought about this a lot. Um, sure. I think um, there are several several answers to it. Um, I think um, one is that uh, his his mother um, was not able to show physical affection. Um, she herself was raised by a nanny, and she said, "I just can't kiss my children." So that was one uh, one uh, obstacle of him showing affection or showing uh, uh, emotional uh, closeness. And his father father was was a very um, explosive person. Um, so I think I guess this this um, made him a- afraid of open of open disagreement or open discussion or uh, he made him more. Um, uh, weak or no, soft on the outside, right? But his aggressive side was was coming out in in, in different ways. And then um, he went to school after with the war and uh, World War One, uh, World War Two, and um, to go to a World higher War education. I, how old are you? No, no, no. But sorry, <laughs> <laughs> not so old. No, no, World War Two, and he only could go go to the lowest school. Because uh, a higher school would have cost money, and they didn't have it. And he was very intelligent, and he could all he could very well have uh, completed a, a university degree. And I think he recognized very soon that I was very uh, intelligent. And I think he couldn't bear that I would um, raise above him. Hmm. And uh, so uh, that was that showed especially. Um, um, uh, uh, Clearly, in, in puberty, when I was developing my own ideas, and I was really fierce when he uh, when he opposed everything that I liked and, and loved, hmm. and uh, I think that that came uh, very much from a um, yeah from a fear that I would I would grow over him and and that he wouldn't wouldn't be able to to tease me or or I don't know I. I, it felt like he was treating me like a brother or even like a father sometimes, and not uh, that I would t- would be his child. So that's right. that's part of the answer. Right, right. But uh, sorry, um, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was I was just really I really appreciate you sharing this, yeah. and I, I know it's a difficult thing to talk about, and I, I really do appreciate it. I have uh, a great deal of fascination about people's relationship, men's relationship with their fathers, because it's something that I have to mostly imagine. So uh, I'm obviously I'm I'm very sorry. Uh, about uh, about what happened, and so you would pursue him, and you would try to win his affections or attentions, and he was uh, elusive. Is that is that what you mean? Yes, uh, but not not quite. Not only elusive, um, because of what I, what I said earlier, he would um, recognize this, and he would use it for his own sadistic imp- impulses. So it was was even worse than just elusive. Um, yeah. And he would, what he would do, what he was, he would talk about uh, stuff that he liked, and uh, would use any um, initiative from from my side to talk about uh, interesting stuff uh, that was interesting to me. Uh, use this uh, to go over to topics that it would be interesting to him and would uh, reinforce his worldview. And so 
that was very frustrating for me because I I felt that I never had room to to be myself and to share my uh, passions and to to be un, uh, supported by him. Right, right. I'm so sorry. I mean, I I feel quite um, quite sad and quite emotional when I I hear you talking about this. I mean, I really get a very deep and strong sense of longing from you yeah. for for connection with your father. Yeah, that was that's very true. That's that's yeah, that's very true. I I very much I would really really uh, would have liked to have a father, not not so much that he would love me that that I could respect. I mean, that's such a big loss to to not have a father that you can look up to and you can you can say I want to be like him. And I had I had to make up my my father rule my my image as a male as a male person that I could respect very much by myself. And of course, I couldn't do it, so I I turned to other uh, male figures outside the family that I could respect, and that often would be old dead men <laughs> that have left books. Right. And so I'm in like Karl Popper was my my one of my first uh, idols. Then it was Carl Rogers, founder of Client Centered Therapy. Of course, yeah, yeah. And, well, you have and, good taste uh, in heroes. That's a, that's a good uh, yeah, right. I think so. Yeah, and now now I, I wrote uh, uh, on the on, on the boards uh, that you were uh, sort of in this place also, and that might be some of the reasons that I was so anx- anxious uh, uh, getting on the call, yes. because of course I I respect you very much for your work, and I'm you in a sense, although you're you are younger, you're in a sense uh, a father to me because you you share. Uh, values and uh, you share uh, wisdom of of how to live your life and I mean that's that's what fathers do ideally I and really so appreciate I'm, that and I I hope that uh, I mean of course we've not talked before but I hope that you have found at least through the conversations that I've had with myself and with others that there's I guess more emotional availability some people might say too much emotional <laughs> availability uh, coming from me but I hope that's not uh, uh, doesn't remind you too much of where you came from. No, no. Of course, I, I mean it's it's great that you are so available uh, as you are. I mean, uh, uh, imagine other other people they are they are dead or or I mean so famous that that not they are not reachable anymore. And I think I'm I'm pretty lucky to to be so early in uh, in FCR so that uh, it's possible still to call in. I I don't know what 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 it is about in 20 years or so. <laughs> well, we'll see. It will be very interesting yeah. to see. Uh, it will either be I'm doing very optimistic. well or very badly. <laughs> yeah, I I'm pretty optimistic. So I'm I consider myself uh, um, glad, but I I'll see. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's I, I'm, it's very understandable. I mean, you you have a child and and you have lots lots of stuff to do, and it's I'm not that's no resemblance to my family, of course. Oh no, I, listen, I, mean, I mean, I I love these Sunday shows. I I do them every day if I could. I I just love these Sunday shows, and I really really enjoy uh, chatting with with you and and with other listeners who call in. I mean, it's it's an incredible yeah. uh, it's an incredible honor to to speak with people who are so honest and open. Uh, so I really really appreciate it. You're not. You're certainly not taking me away from anything I'd rather be doing right now. So I appreciate that yeah. uh, that sentiment. Yeah, yeah. I got now, this. I, the, I have. Uh, I, yeah. Sorry, you have a um, 
you have a uh, a lot to talk about, and I don't want to interrupt, although yeah. I do have some questions and comments. So I, I can go either way, whichever you would prefer. If you'd like to keep talking about the impact that philosophy has had uh, on your life, I would be more than happy to listen, or I could share some thoughts and questions about what you've already said. It's uh, entirely up to you. I would, if it's possible, I would, I would like to go on because I had some points and I really wanted to touch on them and then maybe afterwards we could go into what is most interesting or. It's all interesting to me, but yes, by all means, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. That was the uh, defuing from my father, which, which turned out to be really relieving and, 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 um, it freed up energy that I could use for myself and to give my life more, more focused direction and not this futile uh, search for a connection with my father. I mean, he's 70 and he's not going to, to change. And so that was, that was really a good, a good decision. But hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course. But I mean, I, I, I consciously, uh, co uh, cope with this 20 years, 25 years. And so I'm, that was, that was overdue. Hmm. Yeah. So, but then, um, I, the next point was that I was, um, um, starting to be more honest in my marriage. And, um, that was not that I had, uh, uh weapons in the cellar or something, but, <laughs> um, there were some critical thoughts within me that I was afraid to share. And, um, I, after I, I really uh, was down with the principle that without honesty, there's no relationship and that I have to be principled on this and not uh, decide in case to case. And if I'm too anxious, then I'm not doing it. No, I have to go all the way. Then I, uh, well, I was more honest. And uh, on, in, on the other hand, my wife became more honest because she really picked up um, that I, uh, was really wanting to know the truth and uh, was really uh, wanting to know how she felt with me and that I was really sharing how I felt with her. And that was a bit bumpy, but it, yeah, it turned, it, it, it turned out well and we are no more, um, more connected to each other even more. I think we had a good marriage before, but it was more alive and, uh, more trust and I mean it's it's like standing on hard rock because it's it's reality it's it's you know where you are and it's not fearing and and vague it's you know where you are and you even know when you're losing yourself a bit and you if you're losing contact and you know it as well and so that was um, a very good boost uh, for our marriage and uh, so, yeah, it's much, very much about RDR. And I read this book twice, and it helped me very much to to really stay on focus there. Okay, that was the second well, point. Thank you. I appreciate that. I don't want to interrupt. Uh, I'm I'm taking notes like, yay me, yay philosophy, and yay you. So yeah. <laughs> please go on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, very good and powerful stuff. And it's I, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine that my, my marriage would even be better and it, it, it's so much better in hindsight i i i wouldn't it's like no i i, I wouldn't i wouldn't change yeah okay and um but the next part and uh, there was uh, somewhat around the same time uh, i realized that i uh, was not so clear about my childhood even 
although uh, uh, even no, I say this. I have I had been in in, in two long time therapies before, uh, one before my training and then during my training as a therapist, and uh, uh, that dealt not so much with the childhood, more with the current problems and with self-knowledge and, and uh, emotions and understanding how I function, but not so much how the historics, the, the history of it is, it was. And so I um, uh, decided to, um, to investigate more the relationship of, um, between how I'm functioning in the present and how certain uh, avoidances and uh, um, yeah dis dissociations that occurred um, between me and my wife and uh, between me and myself <laughs> um, how they related to my childhood and uh, also I noticed that I was sometimes uh, rough with my children and uh, um, angry and and uh, harsh uh, and. Un, un, unnecessarily harsh, and I, I recognized that I was that it was also coming from my from my history, and so I decided to go again into therapy, and I deliberately chose to go to a psychoanalyst, uh, although my training was in client-centered therapy, um, because I I figured that um, the psychoanalyst would be more interested in childhood stuff. Right. And that that was the case. I mean, it's it's very dependent on on who you meet. But um, in in my case, it was very um, very true. It helped me very much to to be more present and to know more about myself, to explore some some issues that went very far back, even uh, in uh, in areas where I couldn't speak. So I, I don't know how to interpret this quite well, but uh, I think it's 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 toddler toddler stuff stuff that that uh, went on there. Um, okay, that was the therapy, and that helped me very much to to be more present here in my family, and to love my children more, and to love my wife more, and to love myself and my my life more, and to be more focused and more positive in my life, even more positive. Right. <laughs> um, and that leads to the to the last point um, um, that you talked earlier uh, about in terms of um, being a fixed point and not being um, a variable and being um, yeah not the oil but a cog. And I I feel uh, in the last year I feel very much that I um. I've, oh, I'm not I, yeah, you're not you're there. Or, I certainly am. Okay, okay. Uh, some the, the the background noise changed, so I, I was this, this um, distracted. Um, I feel very much that I'm that I'm more consciously about the principles in my life, and that I have certain values that I uh, more intuitively lived, and now it's more principled. It's more conscious. It's more decidedly and that gives me much more focus and much more passion and much more, much more um, energy to really go for my happiness and to really care for what is important and to rearrange my priorities and uh, of course my my happiness and my wife's happiness and my 
my kids' happiness is 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 of the most important uh, of the utmost importance, and all the other stuff is 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 ranked has been ranked down, and so I think that's that's the right order, and so I'm very much um, happier now, and um, I feel that I have a standard. Uh, from which I, from which I can decide how what to, what what to do, and I can also judge my existing friendships. And uh, I sadly have some skeptical experiences there, and but it doesn't it doesn't um, uh, throw me off track because I I know where I'm going, and I feel that I don't have to agree with, with everybody, and uh, I don't have to fight with everybody. I'm just know where I'm heading and that's my happiness and so that's 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 a very very strong feeling and it's very um yeah I feel strong and and positive and ah, I I don't know how to say this otherwise but uh yeah ah, I maybe um maybe that's that's a very important uh, um uh, yardstick to measure it uh, a year ago I said um I would I would love to. Uh, I would really like to be able to say the sentence "I love X" about anything in my life. And uh, before I went to therapy, I wasn't able to say this. Mm. I knew that I was agreeing with my wife and my life, and I, li I, I like my work. But to really wholeheartedly love any aspect of my life, I wasn't able to say this. And I think that's a very sad statement to make. But I uh, confronted it and I accepted that it was the case. And now it's I can say, yes, I love my life. I love my wife. I love my family. I love my work. And it's not always uh, uh, pleasant, but it's I love it. It's I'm I'm with it. And so that's a really great achievement for me. Yeah. And being able to talk to you in this manner and to talk, uh, yeah, to call in here. I think that's also breaking out of uh, a cell of isolation mm. that is that I have been trained to 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 maintain and uh, yeah so that's I think that's a big achievement and I I'm very very grateful to your work and I think it's a it's a it's a long time work and it's it's I mean you build it up for 20 years or for 30 years and it's it's very valuable to me and I can use it very well and I want to thank you for that and that's my speech Oh, it's uh, it's my absolute pleasure. What uh, what a beautiful uh, beautiful speech, and I really, really am. I'm very moved, and I I really appreciate what you're saying. And of course, you know, it's I think it's important to remember, and this is why I do urge people to to be in contact with you know people they meet through Free Domain Radio, whether it's on the board or just chat with them. I mean, there's really not that many of us, all things considered. I mean, the whole show is resting on the generosity of probably not more than a thousand people. I mean, that's a tiny, tiny number of people. Uh, and, uh, I mean, of course, there are many, many more listeners. Uh, and, of course, many of the people who are listening don't have the capacity to donate. But uh, it is a very small number of people. And the odds of finding somebody as interested in the truth and self-knowledge and philosophy close by, they're small. It's possible. But uh, I do strongly urge people to, to stay in conversation because it can be an isolating thing to um, to pursue self-knowledge. So I just, I mean, thank you so, so much for uh, uh, for calling in. 
And uh, if that's the end of what it is that you want to say, I'd like to <clears throat> to ask some questions, if you don't mind. Just, just one point I have to I have to uh, uh, add, if that's Please. okay, because there are some I know there are some people in the chat room, and I I have gotten into contact very very intense contact with the several people on FER, and it's it has been so gratifying. It's I I have to just say this because it's it wouldn't wouldn't be right to, to not say it. And they are uh, on the call. I I posted it on Facebook that I would would like to call in, and and they all show up here, and it's. I'm so grateful for them to do this. It's so moving and supporting. And so you're absolutely right. It's we're so, so rare on the, on the, on the, uh, on the planet. And it's, it's, it's very gratifying to, to be in contact with, with rational and curious, curious people. Oh yeah. No, they're the best people in the world, I believe. Um, yeah. So I appreciate you, you mentioning that. Uh, Heiko, do you have any thoughts or theories as to why you made so many different choices from your father and from your mother. I mean, better choices, I think, but do you have any yeah. thoughts about why? Yeah, I think that's a very difficult question. I, I actually, I agree. it's um, a very difficult question. I'm just yeah, curious what your yeah. thoughts are. Yeah. I, I actually talked about this with another FDR caller two days ago. And, um, I think my answer was, and that's that's about um, uh, the state of the art <laughs> within my head right now. Um, um, I think my mother, my mother was was. I, I mean, she left me with this with this guy who was my father, and that was not not good. But um, uh, aside from that, she took a pretty rational approach to uh, child raising. Uh, she uh, read uh, the family conference uh, by Thomas Gordon, which is a, a pupil of Carl Rogers. And so we had discussions that would would be a problem. Uh, maybe somebody left the bicycle in front of the house without the lock. And of course, that's a problem. And then we would talk about it. And then we would find a rule we agreed on. And then there was um, um, a rational uh, uh, and not arbitrary way to 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 punish us it was a, a an accounting system with with imaginary money <laughs> and uh, and that that worked quite well and it was uh, we after when we were 18 we we we, uh, we were paid the balance and that was not important anymore then but uh, at the time it worked and I just wanted to illustrate um, that my mother was was quite rational and would listen to our arguments and would be interested in what we thought and would uh, uh, interested in in uh, um, uh, solutions that were we all agreed on. So I think that that was a very good influence. I think, um, and um, I think my father. Um, um, I think he, uh, he, uh, through him, I think I would, I was, uh, I learned to be on my own. Although he neglected me and it was not good for me, um, but I learned to cope with this um, going into inside my head. And I, my childhood was, uh, I was, I was, when I went into therapy, I had to write up my, my, my life and it, it, it stunned me how, how lonely I was. I was 
always in my head and I was curious and intelligent and I was I would read books and even when I was studying I would I mean I studied two two subjects philosophy and, and psychology at once and people were just not interesting to me I would I just wanted to, to know uh, everything uh, science had to say to me and uh, so I developed uh, yeah a life in my inside of my own and and I think that helped me to to free myself from the culture my father was was emitting and that helped me also to go to get through school i was also always a loner i i i did have friends but mostly one at a time and then very intensely with him and so i developed some uh, relationship skills with these single friends and maybe that was a basis for um, not getting sucked into this this destructive uh, stuff with my father too much. Right. So that's that might be some help. Huh? Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like you had different mothering than he had, which is not. I'm mean, not a determinist this way. I think there are still choices, but uh, it sounds like you had more of the odds in your favor based on how you were parented relative to to your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Because he, my father was not so violent with, uh, as his father. Right. He would uh, wrapped in rage sometimes and was very scary. And my father wasn't scary. He was he was a coward. And um, yeah, my mother had sometimes uh, rage attacks, but very rare. And it would they were more directed against my sister. So I I wasn't afraid of her. I was afraid of my, of my father, but not of physical violence, but of asking something of him. Because right. I knew he would use it against me, so but that's not that's not it's a social danger. It's not uh, a life danger, in a right, sense. Right, right. So right. I, I felt kind of secure. I felt well, it's okay. I can live. I have to be lonely. Okay, that's my fate. But I can live, and that's a basis you can stand on. And then you can look out for for different options. Maybe that's that's how it went. Right. And I mean, your, your kids will be healthier than you. And, uh, I mean, not that you're not, I mean, it sounds like you're doing absolutely magnificent and fantastic work. I mean, this is, I, I, if, if I could gather all of the uh, flowers and medals in the world and cast them at your feet, I would, because this is how, this is how the world is saved. You know, there's, there's no yeah. big dramatic election. There's no space aliens coming to pry the weapons from our hands. Uh, God is not <laughs> going to come and, and make the lions lie down, but the lambs. Um, no. This is how it's it's a slow, difficult, painful, exhilarating, exciting process of self knowledge yeah. uh, and dedication to truth. That's how the world is saved, and it is a generational process. And your kids are unbelievably lucky, in my opinion, to to have the benefit, as is your wife. And I'm sure that she's doing her own work, and she should be if she's. I think she's there. So yeah. I just wanted to say massive uh, appreciations to you as well for uh, you know for the work that you're doing in the family. This is. This is how we build a better world. There's no, there are no shortcuts. Yeah. Um, people have tried yeah. shortcuts for hundreds, if not thousands of years and gotten not very far. So I just think it's magnificent what you guys are doing and you should be enormously yeah. proud. This is a life very well lived, in my opinion. Ah, thank you very much. That's, that's recognition. And I, I agree completely because I, I was interested in myself uh, at least when I was 17. And so it's, I, I consistently was into self-knowledge and into into uh, exploring myself and other people. And my wife is also the the type of of searcher I I, I would call it. She's she's also a psychotherapist, and uh, I'm I'm so thrilled that she 
that our relationship survived uh, the impact of FDR because not so many relationships survived that. And so I, I, yeah, it's, I'm very, very happy to have her in my life. And she's also very grateful about the influence of FDR. I'm very happy. And I think people should also remember that my relationship with my wife survived the impact of FDR. So (laughs) that's two. Okay. (laughs) That's pretty good. And just for those who don't know, psychotherapist is two words. Oh, just kidding. Anyway. So, uh, I have uh, a couple of thoughts about, um, I mean, what you're saying is, is affecting me quite strongly. And I think it's because, um, being a father myself, um, mm. I think that what your father did and what you're doing has struck me. So mm. I'd like to sort of share what I'm thinking about, if that's okay with you. I don't want to interrupt what you want to say, but I just wanted to no. share what, what I'm thinking about. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I watched a, um, a house. Uh, MD is a, is a television show. I don't know if you've ever watched it. And, um, uh, this doctor who's very cynical and, and dark and manipulative and funny and intelligent, uh, was uh, locked into a room with a patient who was dying. And this patient, I think he was in his fifties or something like this. And this, it was a man who had been a, a researcher at a university for, I think he said 27 years. And after a lot of, banter back and forth, it, it came out that this man who only had a few hours left to live mm-hmm. uh, was thinking only about his daughter who wasn't mm-hmm. there. And the reason that his daughter wasn't there was that this father had left the family when he, when his daughter was six, he'd had an affair with a student, I think, and he left his, his family and had barely had any contact with, uh, with his daughter since, uh, since his daughter was six. Hmm. And I, uh, I mean, I found this very moving and very powerful mm-hmm. because the last thing that he said before he died was something like, my daughter was the cutest six year old that you'd ever seen. And mm-hmm. his daughter did not call him back in time. His daughter was out and didn't know, um, what had, uh, what had happened or that her father was, was dying. And I think there's a lot of sentimentality in that kind of writing because I, I know a lot of bad dads who just died without seeming to have these kinds of regrets. But let's say that it is true and it is possible. It's just something that, you know, the regrets that come too late. And I think about this in terms of your father and, and my father too, I suppose. But the regrets that come too late are just so painful that this guy only recognizes his love for his daughter when he's within an hour or two of dying. Hmm. I mean, how terrible is that? And, and what a life to have lived where you're not aware of that through all the years that you could have had a great relationship with your children, that, that you're not aware of that. And you're sort of sailing into death and it's only at the very end that the light goes on and the true values that your heart or your defenses, I guess, have kept hidden from you come blazing into light and you see the ruin of what you have made of your life. I think that is about the worst thing that could possibly happen. Uh, and I, th- I think that's what people mean when they, when they say that there is a hell after death. I think that the hell is the moment before death. I mean, we don't really know 
how long, like what happens to our sense of time when we're dying? You know, people say, well, your life flashes before your eyes and you may feel like you've lived for a year before you die or a day or a week or a month. It may feel that way as you're dying that your sense of time gets so crazy. And I've often thought what what it would be like to see the ruin that you've made of your relationships through pride, through defensiveness, through vanity, through cruelty, through falseness, through defensiveness, through hostility, through aggression, all, all of the devils that keep our hearts from each other. That what, what if just before you die, you get to live with those regrets for what seems like an eternity in your minds? Oh, how terrible that would be. Yeah, sorry, somebody just mentioned in the chat window that the guy in the show, he purposefully timed his call so he wouldn't talk to his daughter. And he left a message which was, you know, he just said, hi, it's dad, I love you, and then hung up. And it was a very awkward uh, message. And he said, you know, I, I wasn't there for her whole childhood. What right do I have to ask her to be here for my my death? And, oh, I just, I can't urge people strongly enough to overcome whatever is keeping you from the people that you love, whatever is keeping you from the people that you want in your life, whatever is keeping you from reaching out with vulnerability, with humility, with love, with apologies, with whatever it takes to reconnect with people in your life. Uh, I just think that it's, it's so essential. If you want people in your life, do as much as you possibly can to get those people into your life because it is a cold and dead earth that we are all heading towards and the embrace of loved ones is about the most beautiful thing in the world. And I just, I was just feeling a great deal of sadness when you were talking, just thinking about, you know, the choices that your dad was making and is continuing to make. He's still alive, you know. I can't understand how relationships can die while people are still alive, I, I don't mean you. I mean, I, you are making, I'm sure, the right decisions for you. But I mean for your father. I mean, how terrible, how terrible to, to live in that distance, to live in that self-justification and to not do whatever it takes to tear down the walls that is keeping you, that is keeping you from others. Mm. And what a great gift it would be to you to have that connection before your father died, and how unlikely that is. And I, I was just feeling very sad about that, and I wanted to, mm -hmm. to share that, my, my, um, my sympathy with you about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's even when I think about, uh, I mean, I'm 44, and uh, when I think back 10 years ago, how, how shallow my life was compared to now, and how how non-committed I was to relationships uh, I had in my life and how arbitrary they seemed. And it's, I mean, that's, yeah, it's, it's a loss of intensity and of, of, of joy. And it's, it's so normal in a sense, but it's, I mean, it's not good. It's not, it couldn't be, it cannot be health. Yeah. And you were still, I think, I agree. It's not, it's not the same as health. Um, mm -hmm. What is it? You just, my twenties, what was I doing? I was killing time and having sex. <laughs> it wasn't really yeah. a very deep and rich existence. And, um, mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, it is very, very different. And I also think, I don't know if you found this to be true in your marriage, but I've certainly found it true in my marriage that the trials that we face really bring us closer together. I mean, one thing philosophy serves up 
is trials and challenges. Um, not because we're innately messed up by philosophy. It's just that the culture that we grew up in is so anti-philosophical. So whenever we really begin to gain some wisdom and with wisdom comes courage and integrity, then we begin to, you know, go smack up against the limitations of other people's cultural and emotional defenses. And it's a trial. It's a challenge. But uh, I've certainly found that the trials of philosophy in my life uh, have brought me closer uh, to my wife. It doesn't mean that I'm happy the trials happened, but I'm very happy at the degree to which uh, it has made us uh, a deeper, uh, more in love, more um, uh, accepting and adm- admiring of each other. And uh, that, is a, that is a beautiful thing. And the same thing can happen when you have children. I am so immensely impressed by my wife's um, parenting skills uh, and and the, the love and the patience and the affection that she brings to to our daughter i mean it's a it's a beautiful thing i mean i i thought i loved her when i married her i thought i loved her two years ago but uh it is a um uh, it is a whole different thing when you live philosophically overcome the challenges that are erected against self-knowledge and when you then parent in a better and positive more gentle more caring more positive way um the marriage just turns into a very different thing at least for me yeah, it's a whole, whole another level and and layer of of cooperation and and I mean, having children is the most important project I ever had and and if you have a, a really good partner there, um, that's that's wonderful and and you need the other person so much and you depend so much on the other person that it's it's, it's so gratifying and 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 enjoys if it works out and if you if you have a a method or a procedure how you can resolve conflicts and how you can agree on, on, on certain things. So that's, that, that's adding much more to, to only marriage. Right. And I also wanted to sympathize with, um, you said that you had, and I, I didn't want to pick on you for this because you said you'd been unnecessarily harsh with your children. And I would say that yeah. there's no such thing as necessarily harsh with your children, but that's not yeah. that important. But I, I wanted to mention that I can really sympathize I mean, I'm I'm very happy with what I'm doing uh, as a father. I, I think that I could not do uh, better than what I'm doing. Uh, but I will say this, that I really sympathize with the impulse for harshness with children. I mean, the one thing that is, and, and, and particularly when you're raising your children differently than the way that you were raised. My daughter has taught me an, an immense number of amazing things, but I would say one of the most amazing things that she's ever taught me is how to be assertive without being aggressive. I mean, she is very assertive. <laughs> I mean, when if she's if she's with me and she doesn't want to go to my wife, she'll she'll sort of swing her arm not not aggressively, but just swing her arm like no. And she just doesn't want to. If she if she doesn't want to be picked up, right? So we walk along the street, and if a car comes, I have to pick her up. If she doesn't want to be picked up, she would just pull a Gandhi, and she will just sit down on the ground and give me rubber legs right? so that it's harder to pick her up. Uh, and she's not aggressive about any of this, but she's very assertive. Uh, yesterday we were mm-hmm. at the mall and she loves going up and down this, um, the wheelchair ramp. I think she, she likes it because it's like a little roller coaster. So when she walks uh-huh. down it, she builds up some real speed and her little legs go, you know, and she really loves that feeling of speed. Of course, as a parent, it's a little anxiety producing for me because, you know, she's been doing it for a while 
And she started to do it when she was only first learning to walk. And so she would take a lot of spills and there are lots of people on the ramp sometimes. So it's a little, mm. it's a little challenging. So yesterday she was going up and down the ramp and I was trying to hold on to, um, just the, the sort of back of her sweater just in case she fell. And she, she, she didn't even turn around. She just moved her hand back and swung her little hand at me, like, get your hand off my back, <laughs> whitey. And uh, because she was, she knew she could do it. I mean, she'll reach for my hand when she's going up for a big step because she knows she can't do that on her own. But she knew that she could do it, and she was very assertive that she did not want my help. Uh, it was not necessary. And she was not at all, I don't experience it as aggressive from her, but I experience it as aggressive sometimes within me. And the reason that I experience mm -hmm. it as aggressive is that whenever I would be assertive, uh, I would, you know, not whatever, but most times that I could remember, uh, my, my, whatever authority figure I had would get upset with me. Yeah. You know, like I would say, I don't need your help. And they're like, Hey, I'm just trying to help. You know, they just, they'd get upset. And so mm -hmm. I'm, I associate that level of assertion with aggression from people in authority. And so I feel some of that aggression sometimes. And I just want to say that I, I really do sympathize with that. When you make a huge change from how you were parented, you still carry, you know, all of those bodies around with you while you're trying to learn this new dance. And it's a, it's a real challenge. So I just wanted to, to sympathize with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, it's, that's exactly the same that, uh, what, what you experienced with, um, with, uh, Isabella, Isabella, um, that I, that's, that's exactly, I, I, I then suddenly feel that like my son, uh, is seven years old and is behaving like my father. And that's a, that's a turnaround because he, he's just looking for contact and I feel overpowered or overwhelmed. And, um, that was one reason that I, that I went into th therapy to explore these, uh, layers of perception and to, to differentiate them. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's difficult. And it's also, um, I don't know if you've had this as a, a dad too, but I've had to uncouple this not too often, maybe half a dozen times over the past couple of months. But what will happen is I will say, uh, to Isabella, no about something, right? Do another piece of popsicle and I'll say no. And she'll, mm -hmm. and sometimes she's fine with it, but sometimes she'll get really upset. And I feel mm -hmm. this urge within me. I don't think it's organic, but I feel this urge within me to take a stand, you know, like no mm -hmm. means no. I said no popsicle and no matter how upset you go, you get no means no. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I have to keep saying to myself, it doesn't matter. It's not a symbol for anything. It's a piece of popsicle mm -hmm. and we have this sugar free, all juice popsicles. It's not even bad for her. Right. And yeah. so if she really wants another piece of popsicle, Why not just give, you know, like, why am I, why am I taking a stand on something that is so unimportant? Mm -hmm. Obviously, if she wants to run into the road, <laughs> that's not something that, oh, I'll, you know, next time I'll stop her. But when it doesn't matter, <laughs> I find that I, I have, you know, I just, I just, I feel like I need to take a stand to assert my authority to, to gain her. And it's all nonsense because that mm -hmm. is not gaining her respect. That's just pointlessly denying her something. It's not completely pointless. I don't just sort of arbitrarily say no. But I, I sort of feel like if I give her another piece of popsicle, then she's going to want more and more, and it's going to be harder and harder. But I found that that actually isn't the case at all. I have found that when I give her the piece of popsicle, she's generally fine and doesn't want another piece of popsicle or whatever it is that, that is going on. It's relatively unimportant. 
And but there's this this desire within me to just just take a stand and not budge because I associate that with authority because that's what I experienced as authority for so much of my childhood. And it's not, but it, it's not important like to, to be flexible in those situations where she really wants something and therefore why not, you know, assuming it's safe, I mean, why not give it to her? That is, um, that, that is something that is really tough occasionally. Again, it doesn't happen to be very often, but it is something that I have to keep sort of unplugging in myself from time to time. Yeah, that's a, that's an experience I know also very well. And I find it sometimes really difficult to, to differentiate between anxieties that I have and that are unfounded and anxieties that are founded. And so it would be rational to, to oppose a certain uh, intention of my child. And I think it's, it's getting better if they are older so they can reason more. But, I think that that's that's sometimes very difficult. And then if you have two kids and are alone with them, it's also sometimes overwhelming because you need some time to to differentiate uh, if it's only my question here or if it's a real issue. And so right. that's, that's right. Yeah. And in particular, of course, because our kids don't have any of our issues, right? And yeah. I, mean, I think I mean I hope that they don't, because otherwise we've not been doing that great a job. But they're just doing their thing. They don't have mm -hmm. the history that you and I have or other people have. And so mm -hmm. they're just doing their thing and they don't notice really that they're treading on old landmines that we have and so on. And mm -hmm. they shouldn't. I mean, they shouldn't know that, I guess, for the most part. But it is they don't know sometimes how much processing is going on when change is occurring. I think kids don't know that and they shouldn't know that. But uh, it is it is a lot of processing to make these kinds of changes. It's a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, very significant, uh, almost hyper consciousness to to make different choices than what has been imprinted. Yeah, yeah, and I'm so ha so happy that I can talk with my wife about this, and we are almost every time on the same page. And she's also very interested in in, in thinking about education and and how we raise our kids. And so we we're we're often often sitting here evenings and and talking about the day and when we get. Ex got upset and what caused this and what's the future plan of action and so it's very much work and it's 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 a job it's a real job it's not just coming out of you intuitively if you really want to change something uh in relation to your childhood then it's really hard work yeah. it is very hard work it is very hard work and i also have sort of found it more important to remember to give isabella as many victories as possible uh, and, mm. and sometimes, you know, of course, I was I was brought up with the idea that if you give a child an inch, they'll take a mile, that you have to stand firm because otherwise they'll just take, take, take. And there's this fear of of ch children's snowballing needs and desires just swallowing up the parent like some grim second womb or something. And it's not true. I mean, it's not true. It's just it's like a ghost story that people tell themselves so that they can be harsh with their children. Because the reality is the childhood is at least to the age Isabella's almost 16 months. Childhood is so far has been like 99.999% failure. Um, oh, you know, yeah. she, she couldn't even roll. She couldn't turn over. She couldn't even find her own face when she was born. And then she learned how to crawl. And then she learned how to walk. And now she's learned how to run. And she can throw balls. And she's learning her ABCs and all that. But she gets most of it wrong. I mean, when she's learning words, she gets, you know, she she has this thing now where um, we were just out for a walk the other day and there are these white water spouts that drain 
the water from this uh, the roofs onto the people's, um, I guess, beside their houses. And she was trying to peer up it, sort of on, on her squatting down, sometimes on her hands and knees. And she was trying to peer up it. And she was, she was saying, Babu, Babu, Babu. And I couldn't figure out what on earth she was doing until I remembered that she had seen a day or two before a, a little cartoon with, a, you know, Itsy Bitsy Spider went up the water spout and in it there was a white water spout. And so she was saying spider and trying to find the spider that has gone up the water spout. And it took us literally 45 minutes to get to the park, which is just a block away, because every house she had to stop and, Babu, spider, where's the spider? Mm-hmm. So she can't say the word. She doesn't know the correct association, though it's immensely impressive what she's doing. And mm-hmm. she doesn't get to find a spider, right? So it's a lot of failure in a sense. And it's really, really important to give, uh, I think, kids victories wherever you can, because a lot of mm-hmm. childhood is is failure. I mean, if I had as much failure in a day as Isabella has in an hour, I'd, I'd have a tough time getting out of bed. But she gets, you know, she just keeps on going. And I think that's, that's an amazing and impressive thing. Mm. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, if you have two kids, then it's, it's a, an additional challenge because the younger one is always looking at the older one and seeing what he's always, always able, already. Oh, able yes. To yeah. Do. I remember that when I was a kid too. I remember that when I was a kid too. Like, why can't I do that? Yeah. And we have three years difference, so there's no there's no way that the younger one can uh, challenge the older one, and that's that's an, uh, an usher, another uh, additional problem. So you have to be aware that you're not um, 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 heating up the the, the um, competition between them. Right, yeah. and I think it's also a challenge for the older child to not feel vain for the accident. Yeah of just having been born early, right? Hey, look, I can run fast. Hey, look, I'm stronger. Hey, look, I have better words. Hey, look, I can stay up later and I get more allowance. But that's all just accidental, mm-hmm. right? And it's very important to to remind, uh, I guess, the siblings that, you know, birth order is no is no uh is no earned achievement, right? It's just it's just accident, right? So I know I just sort of pointed out. Mm-hmm. And with the harshness again or with the taking a stand issue, um I have t- two boys and I think in respect of uh, of their um, wiseness uh, or impulsivity, they are quite different. And uh, not only because they are different age, but it's a different temperament, different type of person. And so um, that's also an, an additional difficulty because if you if you are calibrated to one person and then you try to make the same decision with the other person, it's not right because he needs more... Um, uh, rules and more, um, how do you say this? Friction. Some, mm. uh, the other one, and the other one is, is more rational and is more uh, uh, thinking things more. And so that's that's also um, difficult. If uh, you cannot you cannot raise the, the um, two childs with a different style, you have to you have to adjust the style sometimes. Right, and of course, if they're both asking for something similar with different styles at the same time, can be a real challenge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Wow. Well, now I want to, I just want to see if there are any other uh, people who have questions or comments, but I, of course, you're absolutely welcome to call in any time. And I, I think, I'm not sure what, what time is it in Germany at the moment? Oh, it's uh, one Go hour on. before. No, 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 no. It's a uh, ghost hour. <laughs> one, one hour before midnight. Oh, oh, okay. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, anytime you can call in, I would be, be thrilled. I also wanted to ask you, and I, you, you can answer this, of course, or not as you see fit, but 
Uh, has it changed uh, your application of psychology in in other areas? This uh, the philosophical approach that we take here. Um, yes, uh, I think I, I think so. Um, um, I, w- I, I already was was of the opinion that um, psychotherapy is um, applied philosophy. <laughs> I think, and um, listening to FDR was. Uh, just reinforced this belief and I think I was more conscious of of the, the patterns and of the principles uh, that were going that were going on into in, in case uh, studies and I was more um, aware of guilt issues and uh, moral clarity and so I think I was I was more more precise uh, in my approach and more more um, passionate sometimes in my approach um, which I think has made me a better therapist, um, but it was not um, that it completely revolutionized uh, my my approach to to psychotherapy. Yeah, maybe well, and it's interesting short. because you said, well, you were looking for patterns in your life that may be related to early childhood patterns, and that, of course, is Psych 101, right? That that's you know the first couple of years in primary relationships, but it's very different mm-hmm. when you start to dig into it yourself rather than just read about it. And I'm sure that's made you a better therapist mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean that's what that was part of the training. Uh, um, of course, uh, but yeah, uh, it was not that thoroughly um, that I wanted to have it, and so um, I was not completely that way. I started it only last year, but um, uh, it was just one uh, uh, a fine tuning, maybe. Yeah. Right, right. Well, thank you so much uh, for for uh, calling in. I hugely appreciate it. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that you're talking about. I mean, this is, um, you know, this makes the trials and tribulations and stresses uh, of of this uh, this show. Uh, it, it's all worthwhile every day when I hear about stuff like this. So I really, really do appreciate uh, you sharing with that. And of course, the people who've been uh, listening in the chat room and uh, on Skype have been very, very positive uh, and and uh, again enormously appreciative for you calling in. Um, Massive, of course, uh, thanks to your wife as well for her support of what you're doing here. Um, I'm also yeah. thrilled, of course, because uh, through your practice, you will be spreading, um, I think, you know, better philosophy and self-knowledge values to your patients or your clients, which I think is fantastic. So uh, I really do appreciate the call in and uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you also uh, so much. I felt very much appreciated and, and welcomed and it was uh, really fun to talk and I'm not anxious anymore. Oh, thank Fantastic. you very much. Any anytime, anytime. Uh, you're you're welcome, of course, which is true of all listeners. But uh, uh, anytime you want to call in, please feel free. Okay, I, I should say greetings from my wife, and I will call uh, another time. Fantastic. Okay, goodbye. Thank you so much. All the best. Yep. Well, that's just wonderful, wonderful news, and uh, this is the kind of stuff. And I mean, I I don't get to share because you know, I don't get permission or I don't get round to it, but I don't get to share the number of. Um, uh, you know, just enormously positive uh, comments that um, that I get. I mean, it is at least 50 to 1 positive to negative uh, in terms of the comments that I get. Uh, not exactly the case on YouTube always, but certainly in my inbox, uh, I get enormously positive uh, feedback, uh, as, as do the listeners. I mean, as do the people who are calling in and the conversations that I have with people. So... Um, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you again so much. Everybody, you know, who donates, who uh, who um, who posts on the board, who's been part of a conversation, who talks about philosophy, whether it has anything to do with this show or not, is not particularly material. But um, people who talk about philosophy and who are taking the challenge of living with the really challenging integrity. Um, do you know, I, I was just thinking the other day, 
Um, and well, sorry, just before I go into that, uh, I just want to make sure I'm not interrupting. Uh, if uh, people have uh, questions or comments that they would like to uh, like to bring in, I'm all ears. If you'd like to talk, better you than me. All right. Well, I uh, feel free to interrupt me at any time, but I will just give a, a short um, chat about something that I was thinking about the other day. <clears throat> you know, Freedom Domain Radio is a pretty cool thing. And I hope that you understand that, that when I talk about the virtues of this conversation, it's not, you know, self-praise. Uh, it's really, it has to do with the technology and the listeners, because without, without the technology and without y'all, I am uh, <laughs> yelling in my car to empty air, or was, I suppose. But, do you know, Freedom in Radio is the first time that philosophy has not got its ass kicked up and down the street. And I think that's really, really interesting. I was just thinking about this the other day. Free Domain Radio is the first time philosophy has not get, gotten its ass kicked or been co-opted into the university system or the, um, the media system or the, into the court intellectual system or whatever. But it is, uh, it is the first time that it has not gotten its ass kicked. Uh, and I was thinking about the really independent philosophers um, I mean, Socrates, of course, put to death. Aristotle was almost put to death and was chased out, vowing that he was not going to let Athens sin against philosophy. Twice, the Stoics lived in a barrel. Um, a lot of the Roman philosophers ended up getting corrupted by political power, which was not good. Um, the Christian philosophers were all insane uh, throughout the Dark Ages and the early Middle Ages. And uh, you could sort of go on and on through uh, through those philosophers and this is the first time, I think, where truth has really been spoken to power, both personal, religious, and political, where the philosophy is, you know, kicking some ass and taking some names. And I, I think that's actually, it's a really cool thing. I mean, think of how lonely and isolated somebody like Nietzsche was. You know, he was um, a philologist, a professor of philology, I think in his early 20s, but he didn't last because of stress. Um, he went insane for a variety of reasons, some of which is um, considered to be that he contracted syphilis during his one or two sexual encounters. Uh, but, you know, a pretty, pretty rough life that, uh, that he had. And uh, Ayn Rand, um, it's, it's hard to say whether her life was happy or unhappy, uh, but um, I certainly don't think that she died feeling the glow of achievement relative to what she sought out to achieve when she started. And I think that is... Um, but the, but this really is the first time where philosophy is, um, you know, after 2,500 or you could even say 3,000 years. I mean, first of all, philosophy is in a pretty pitiful state after 3,000 years. Or let's just say Socrates, 2,500 years. Philosophy is in a pretty piss poor state. Think of how much medicine can advance in 100 years. And then think of how much philosophy has not advanced in 2,500 years. That many of the same questions that were being asked by Socrates remain, at least accepting this conversation, I think, in many areas, remain unanswered. That is a significant, I mean, that lack of progress has only been matched by something like astrology and tarot card reading. And so I think it is, um, it is really, really powerful uh, and important to recognize that uh, philosophy is really getting them things done, finally. Uh, and again, this is because of the uh, amazing quality of the communications technology that is available. I mean, of course, we can understand that without, without the internet, without Skype, without, I mean, this would all be impossible. Imagine ordering a box of FDR tapes. <laughs> I guess it would be a couple of crates that would have to be flown in by helicopter. 
but um, and would cost thousands and thousands of dollars, whereas this is all mostly free. And so uh, philosophy is finally, uh, because of the technology, you know, philosophy helped capitalism. Capitalism funded the state. The state created the Internet. Philosophy takes over the Internet and solves the problem of statism. It's a, it's a retroviral virus, I think. But um, it is really the first philosophy conversation that I can think of that is neither serving power nor uh, falling apart. And I think that's, uh, I think that's fantastic. And uh, I think that's something to be enormously proud of. To be enormously proud of participating in for you. So. All right. I think we... Oh, we have somebody. Um, somebody has written something about UPB. They have a, a question or comment about UPB. Uh, so this is from page 87. This is, I guess, my writing. So if, on the other hand, we say that violence is bad, then we open up the possibility of self-defense. If it is a UPB-compliant statement to say that violence is evil, then we know that since that which is evil can be prevented through the use of violence... The use of violence to oppose violence is morally valid. My question, why, uh, why, can't, why can that which is evil be prevented with violence? I don't find that established anywhere in the book, anywhere above. Well, uh, <clears throat> this is a challenge of UPB, and it is a continual challenge, and I, I certainly uh, respect the fact that it is challenging, which is moral questions are almost always put to us in forms of instances. You know, like you're in a lifeboat and you're starving and two guys, one is currently glazed with honey butter chicken and the other is glazed with um, some sort of uh, Dunkin' Donuts frosting, which you eat first, depending on whether you have uh, <laughs> diabetes or not. Like th those sort of it's those instances. Right. So we always, you know, or, or, you know, the classic one of the guy whose wife is dying and he's got to steal the medicine because he can't buy it because he doesn't have the money and the guy won't sell it to him and so on. And um that's that's not what UPB is about. Uh, UPB is about testing the validity of moral propositions, right? So um, the question uh, around the initiation of force and the response to force needs to be framed in the form of a theory. UPB cannot judge individu individual actions. UPB can only judge theories, right? In the way that science can't judge, you, you say, this rock falls. Is it valid? Well, I don't know <laughs> because there's no theory. So uh, the, what we have to do is evaluate Right, we evaluate equations. That mathematics is for evaluating equations, not numbers. Right, so if you go to a mathematics conference and you put up a PowerPoint which says, "The number six, true or false, <laughs> valid or invalid, correct or incorrect," people would say, "Well, mathematics cannot judge a number because a number is not a proposition. A number is a discrete entity." And so UPB uh, needs to look at, in the, in the same way, UPB needs to look at testable hypotheses and propositions. Right, so I hope this isn't a completely long way of answering uh, this this question. But um, uh, that which is evil, sorry, that which is evil can be prevented with violence, uh, is not exactly a testable proposition um, because it doesn't have a universality around it, and it doesn't have a, a true or false testability to it. Um, I, I'm just trying to think, and I said I haven't put my UPB hat on for a while, so bear with me as I sort of reorient myself back from our um, wonderful German listener. 
But if I remember rightly, um, the argument within the UPB goes something like, um, uh, it is, uh, 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 the initiation of violence is, um, uh, cannot be universally, sorry, uh, the initiation of violence as a good cannot be universally performed, right? Two guys in a room can't both initiate force against each other. Because if one is initiating force against the other and the other is initiating force against this guy, they can't both be doing that at the same time. I mean, they can't do it exactly simultaneously. Um, and so, and so we can say that the initiation of the use of force as a universal moral good can't be achieved because it also fails the coma test, right? Where a guy in a coma is not initiating force and therefore a guy in a coma can't be considered immoral, right? Inaction uh, can almost never be considered immoral, right? I mean, all other things being equal. I don't mean inaction if someone's drowning and you can just reach over and help them, but uh, the, the so so we have to say that the initiation of force cannot be a universally preferable behavior. It just doesn't work logically or empirically. And so we have to say, well, the non-initiation of force is a um, uh, is a universally uh, preferable behavior. And um, you'll just have to excuse me. I will have to sort of look it up because, again, it's been a couple of years since I wrote the book and I haven't thought about this theory in a long time. But um, uh, that which is uh, imposed uh, through violence can be responded to uh, through violence because... All right, hang with me. This is this is philosopher thinking live with a slight cold. So let me uh, let me just see if I can mull it over. And if anybody remembers the answer to this, please feel free to pop it into the chat room. But um, uh, let me just see that if I can see that with violence. Oh yeah. Okay. So if uh, if the initiation of force is uh, is not a valid moral theory, then to um, uh, to, to respond and stop that is to reestablish a moral theory, right? I mean, the purpose of the non-initiation of force is that you can return somebody, the, the purpose of morality, really, in many ways, is to return somebody to a, um, uh, to a moral state, just as the purpose of medicine is to return somebody to a state of health, and uh, the purpose of nutrition is to return somebody to a state of you know, good nutrition or whatever. And so the purpose of morality is to reestablish morality wherever possible. And so if somebody is initiating force, uh, the moral response is to prevent that uh, action from occurring. Uh, and that is a way of preventing the evil from, from actually occurring. And so uh, you can, and, and, and it's proportional. This is why the idea of proportionality is important, right? So if some guy comes at you with a butter knife, you don't get to bomb his house, right? I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, if somebody comes at you, you hopefully can just disable them, and it's only in an extremity where you would shoot to kill and so on. Because uh, it is around the uh, the enactment of an invalid moral theory around the initiation of force. And so if it is invalid to initiate force, then it must be valid to prevent somebody from initiating force. Right? Because if you if there's no if you can't prevent somebody initiating force, then you're agreeing that the initiation of force is correct. But the initiation of force is not correct, and therefore you have the um, uh, the right. I know that's a loosey goosey word, but we we'll just use it in its colloquial context for the moment. And you have the right to prevent that because whoever is initiating force is acting on an invalid moral theory, and therefore can be prevented uh, from from their action, uh, justly prevented from their action. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Steph. This is Nima. Oh, hi. Hi. Yeah, I, I asked a question. Um, 
so yeah, that makes sense. Um, thank you. I'm sorry. That's that's. I'm, I'm not going to say that's a perfect explanation, but uh, I mean, and, and you've raised a good question. I, I'm sorry. I should know the text a little better. I did I, write it for I think many months and I read would it put it. I had an idea of how to put it. Maybe. Please. Um, I was thinking about it. Uh, I think uh, it's just a matter of a physiological fact that the initiation of force in most cases simply has to be opposed with violence in order to avoid it. It's not whether it's okay or whether it should be done or whether it's valid to do it, to oppose it with violence, but it seems to me like it's just a fact. To avoid it, you have to use violence. Well, I'm sorry to... to um to contradict you, uh, and I certainly do appreciate your review, and I've finished the podcast, though I haven't released it yet. Um, I think that statism could not work if that were true. I, I think it, what is the case is that the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people, will choose to uh, deal with violence by obeying, right? So, I mean, to take a simple That's example. That's not what I meant. I'm sorry. That's oh, I apologize. I Go on. Um, what I meant was... Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are other ways of avoiding things. Like it has, you can also avoid it with considerable effort, right? But you mean like if you go live in the woods rather than pay taxes, kind of thing? Right. right. Yeah. So, so that's why I said in my review, I, I, I think it's either violence or considerable effort. There are situations where there's no other way of avoiding uh, an attack than to use violence. For example, like rape. You know. Well, um, again, sorry to, to be annoying, but um, most um, most people who are raped submit rather than attack back. Right, but I'm saying if you want to avoid it. Oh, yeah. Well, you can try run away, and if you can't run away, then you can submit. But and, and if, you, if you really want to not be raped, uh, then you can try and fight for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and I agree yeah. with you that in an extremity, that's really your only shot. If you really don't want to, of course, nobody wants to, but if you really want to avoid that, then... You know, but of course, if someone's got a knife to your throat or whatever, then most people will just say, "Okay, well, I can survive one, but probably not the other." So, right, right. Yeah, it's only if you want to avoid it, right, in the extremity. Yes, then you no, might I agree. Have to resort to violence. And uh, I, I have given you, I think, a, a fairly good, though I don't think a very rigorous answer. Uh, so let me crack the book this week, and I will give you uh, hopefully a better one. Hopefully, one from the book, right? Because there's not much point saying. Uh, I don't like any of the songs on your album. Like, well, I've got this really great one I didn't put on the album, right? So hopefully it's in the book, and I will do my best to dig it up. Uh, and I appreciate you bringing that up. And I'm, I think I gave you a fairly okay answer, but I don't think it's yeah. a perfect one, and it certainly don't think it's one. Um, uh, I don't think it's one that uh, is in the book. So uh, it's just off the top of my head, but it's a it's a great question, and I will try and give you a better answer. Thanks, Steph. Thank you. Uh, this is a fellow from Economics Junkie. Is it econ is it blogs economicsjunkie.blogspot.com, is that right? It's economicsjunkie.com. Dot com. Okay. Economicsjunkie.com. Uh he did a um a, a good review uh, on uh, uh university preferable behavior and uh, I uh, just read I read his review as a podcast with some thoughts and I'll put that out this week and I just wanted to thank him and, and recommend that you go to economicsjunkie.com uh, to get your fix. Uh, because he's a uh he is a well-read man. I'll tell you that he is. He is a very. He's read the Austrians. Uh, he's read Human Action, which most people use to uh, to kill spiders the size of a Buick. Uh, so good for you. Thank you. And did you have anything else that you want to talk about with that, or should I move on? Oh uh, no, that's all. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, man. Economicsjunkie.com. Thanks for the free ad too.
Oh no! Listen, you're welcome. I'm I'm happy to. Uh, I always try to um, to pimp as many good sites as I can. It's not like the internet's gonna run out of quality <laughs> content any day soon. So it's a it's a complete win win. Right. All right. So I think we have time for another question or comment or issue or problem. Um, so I am all ears. going once. Oh, um, and maybe if nobody else has a question, I, I would have another question about UPB. Please. If it's not too boring. <laughs> no, it's um, not boring for me at all. This is, this is the most important, one of the most important things I've ever done, so I'm hoping it's not boring. Right. There were some... Um, in your book, there's a section about more complicated tests of UPB. And um, it seems like Some of these you didn't you didn't conclude with okay the statement it is uh, universally preferable or it is an aesthetically positive action or it is neutral. Um, I wrote down an example. I just need to look it up. Uh, I think I sent you an email about what, about something like okay what what is the statement uh, wh where does self defense fall in your categorization? For example, well, self-defense to me would be aesthetically preferable, but not. Okay. Um, and to me, it's it's not neutral because it involves violence, but you can't initiate force, right? So you you can't you can't use force, right, to get somebody to respond to the use of force because that's sort of a self-contradiction, right? You can't you can't you you can't force someone to act in self-defense because they would only be using act they would only be acting in self-defense against the use of force. So I think that it right. would have to be uh, reactive that way. Right. Okay. That's what I thought, but uh, I don't know if you noticed, but you didn't say that in, in the book. I, uh, in I'm the, absolutely that. sure that um, uh, I am, I'm absolutely sure that I didn't say that in the book, and and I'm absolutely <laughs> convinced that there are about six million other things that I didn't say in the book. And this is a a challenge, right? And and some people agree with this, and some people don't. And I, I think I hope it's a kind of choice. Um. And what I mean by that is that if I were to write a, a book that would deal with every possible uh, – I'm not saying you're suggesting this, but if I were to write a book that would deal with every possible moral question, it would run into – well, I would never finish, right? It would, it would right, never, absolutely. Yeah. No, but you did four million neutrality and so on. Sorry? No, I just thought – because you did deal with this question. It was just one – like four words that were missing in the end. Like, okay, does self-defense is APA or, or something like that? <laughs> Right. No, I, I think that's I think that's true. And 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 the but the challenge I have with that is that um, uh, I don't want people to look at UPB as a way of answering moral questions. I, okay. I, like I, I don't want I don't want people to look it up right any more than a math teacher wants to just teach you a bunch of numbers to put at the end of an equation. Right. right? So the purpose is to say, okay, well, if there's a theory which involves self-defense and the initiation of force, how would that work? in a rational framework and, and what's the evidence and so on. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that, oh, I had that in and I took it out, but I tried not to go to the nth degree with every moral question. Uh, I, right. I thought, I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, the big four that are in there uh, are, uh, you know, rape and murder and theft and uh, and property rights. Uh, I thought those, those, those are the big four of ethics. Like, I mean, if you get a society that gets those right, then mm -hmm. guys stealing cures from druggists who won't sell them, it's like it's going to happen once every hundred years as opposed to constant war and imprisonment and taxation now. 
And so I sort of felt like I'm going to, uh, this is sort of a behind the scenes, and I, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm defending the book, but I just sort of explain what it is that, that I was thinking of. I mean, if I can do the big four without getting an ought from an is, uh, the big four of, of, you know, rape and theft and murder and property rights, and if I could also do things like what's the difference between being late and stabbing someone with a, a quill, uh, then I thought, okay, that's, that's enough to chew off in one book, you know, because right. no, no philosopher that I know of has ever done that before without making what I would consider to be significant mistakes around the nature of man and getting an ought from an is and all that kind of like the Randian approach of um, that, which is proper for man's life and so on, which I couldn't quite yeah. swallow. So I thought if I can, part. yeah, if I can establish those four things and throw a couple of other goodies in without using the cheat in a sense of getting an ought from an is, I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. Now, of course, there will be people, and, and you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm certainly not criticizing you for saying so. There will be people who say, quite rightly, but it doesn't deal with this, and it doesn't deal with that, and it doesn't deal with the other. And that is entirely true. Uh, and uh, I, I completely agree with you on that. But the purpose of the book is to show how UPB works to establish the four big uh, ethical um, questions. And and why only those four and not a bunch of other ones, right? Because lots of people would say, well, the welfare state is a moral thing. And UPB says, well, it's not, which I guess most libertarians would agree with. And so it's sort of not only is it the big four, but only the big four, right? Not uh, other things that are not considered moral by many of the people whose thinking I respect. So I thought, well, okay, if I can do the big four and only the big four and show how the other ones aren't valid um, without breaking the ought from an is thing, well, that's a... That's pretty cool. And I agree with you that there's lots of things and people say, well, what about this question? What about this question? What about this question? And those are all true. And my invitation uh, is is to sort of say, well, take the methodology for a spin and see right. and see what happens, right? Because the scientific – nobody writes – nobody should write to Francis Bacon and say, you know, well, is my theory true? Because he would say, <laughs> I'm teaching you the scientific method so you can go do it for yourself, right? Um, and that's that. And again, uh, I appreciate what you're bringing up and the, the fantastic questions. Uh, but I would say that it's more valuable to try and take the methodology for a spin um, and see if it works. And if it doesn't, of course, you know, please let me know. And, you know, because I went through a lot of this. That's why I have this section in the book on UPB. Don't eat meat on Fridays or don't eat fish on Fridays, which was a really <laughs> it was a tough one right. to figure out. Right? Like, Wait a minute. That is consistent. It is universal. Wait a minute. So um, so. Uh, UPB, again, it's really designed to be a methodology, not a sort of look-up answer book, and uh, that would be uh, my suggestion. So and that's why not everything is, is in the book, if that makes sense. And plus, I mean, nobody would read it. It would just be, you know, people would die rather than, than read it. All right. It's like when I ask such, such questions, I guess it's more like some sort of training for me. No, and, and I agree with you, and I, I'm happy to discuss the questions, but if you're sort of asking why they aren't in the book, that's that's sort of my answer. Uh, yeah, yeah, got, I got that. That's what I thought, too. <clears throat> do, do. I'm sorry, I'm just looking at, um, there was um, the non-aggression principle here in UPB, and I'm just... Uh, Okay, so the non-aggression principle is basically the proposition that the initiation of the use of force is morally wrong. Or to put it more in terms of our conversation, the non-initiation of force is universally preferable. Right. 
So when we put the NAP together with UPB, we get to whittle these seven, the, the seven possibilities of, of um, whether it's UPB or not down to three. Uh, one, it is universally preferable to initiate the universe, use of force. Or two, it is universally preferable to not initiate the use of force. Or three, the initiation of the use of force is not subject to universal preferences. And three, we discard because you can't violently inflict someone and not say it's subject to universal preferences. And so it becomes sort of one or the other. And I'm just, I'm just skimming through the book here to see if, if, you know, we, we get something useful out of it in this, uh, in this particular area. So we get to whether or not it is, um, let me just get, I think I used a hyphen for self-defense here. Do, 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 do. Yeah, self-defense is the enforcement of a preference to, to not be aggressed against, which is in accordance with a universal, with the universal value or validity of the non-aggression principle. So in that, it is in conformity with, uh, with UPB. Right. And that's different. Like you can't shoot someone for being late because they're not actually inflicting it on you violently. I mean, you're free to leave. You don't have to be friends with them. Uh, and you're there voluntarily, right? They may have lied to you, which is not. Oh, I can. I'm sorry? I could. You could what? Shoot him. Oh, you, you, sorry, you could, but you can't, you can't say that it is a valid moral theory that we should right. initiate force against people who aren't initiating force against us. Because then you have to both initiate force and not initiate force at the same time, two people in right. the same room, and that can't work. Now, how about the, the attacker? Because if the person is defending himself, he's defending himself, then the attacker can't defend himself at I'm that sorry, moment. No, but one thing I was sort of struggling with was, so the if it has to be applicable at all times, all places, to everybody, then if somebody's using violence to defend himself against an attacker, the attacker couldn't use defense uh, at that moment. Well, sure, um, but that's because the attacker is initiating the use of force, right? So uh, right. universal doesn't mean at all times and under all circumstances, no matter what the preceding situation. Okay. That, that would be like saying that the diet for a diabetic should be exactly the same as for an athlete. Right. So there, there is a prior thing which conditions it. Right. So what happens the moment before is important in the moral evaluation. Uh, otherwise, there would okay. be no such thing as the, as the initiation of force. Right. So the person who's initiating force, uh, the rule of self-defense doesn't apply to them because they're actually initiating and not defending. If that makes sense. Okay. I mean, that's how we know the difference between lovemaking and rape. Right. It's sort of it, what, it's what happens before, so to speak, even if it's like. You know, rough sex with a safe word, right? It's still different from rape if it's uh, consensual. Right. Ah, okay, let's see here. Uh, so there's a bit on, on self-defense here. Let's just see here. So the, this is from the book. The concept of self-defense should not be taken for granted if we assume that there is no such thing as self-defense or that self-defense is never a valid action. Then the framework of UPP undoes that assumption very quickly. If there is no such thing as self-defense, then we are not talking about the initiation or the retaliation of the use of force, but rather just the use of force in any context. In other words, if we get rid of the concept of self-defense, the only question that we need to ask ourselves is, is it universally preferable to use force or not? Because then there's no such thing as initiation, because there's no such thing as uh, a difference between initiation and retaliation. If it were universally preferable to use force, then no human being should ever advance a moral argument, but rather should use force to achieve his ends. However, just as in the rape, theft, and murder example cited above, the claim that it is universally preferable to use force immediately invalid invalidates itself. To be able to use force upon another person 
requires that that person submit to force. In other words, in order for one person to be moral, the other person must be immoral, which cannot stand. Also, if the other person submits to force, it is not force. Thus, he must resist, which requires that he resist virtue in order to enable virtue, which is self-contradictory. So we talked over that. And let's see here. Okay, so let's see here. If we say that violence is bad, then we open up the possibility of self-defense. If it is a UPB-compliant statement to say that violence is evil, then we know that, since that which is evil can be prevented through the use of violence, the use of violence to oppose violence is morally valid. Thus, since we know that violence is evil, we know that we may use force to oppose it. If we define an action as evil, but also prevent anyone from acting against it, then we are no longer moral philosophers, but merely judgmental archaeologists. This would be akin to a medical theory that said illness is bad, but that it is evil to attempt to prevent or cure it, which would make uh, no sense whatsoever. Also, if human beings cannot validly act to prevent harm to themselves, then actions such as inoculations, wearing gloves in the cold, putting on sunscreen or insect repellent, building a wall to prevent a landslide, brushing one's teeth, wearing shoes, and so on, would all be immoral actions because you would be using, uh, you would be using uh, acting to protect yourself, uh, or you know, uh, disabling a dog that was going to attack you or whatever. Right? So, so yeah, if we def- if something is evil, then uh, that immediately opens up. The, uh, the right, so to speak, to, uh, to prevent uh, or, or cure it. Um, that's, uh, I think that's sort of close to what I was saying before. Uh, I don't have the actual, but you have the PDF. You can just do a search for self-defense. It's about two-thirds down. Uh, you can just do a search for the concept of self-defense. There's um, uh, a fairly, not a fairly long, medium-long chapter about it. And um, you can have a look at it. And, of course, if it's, uh, if it's still completely incomprehensible, then uh, please let me know and we'll take another swing at it. Sure. That's yeah. That's where I cited from, actually. All right. Let's see here, Steph. I've heard you point out that some people can hold off gratification while others have difficulty in doing so. How can someone develop or redevelop his or her mind to strengthen one's ability to hold off gratification? <clears throat> um, I don't know. Is my short answer. Uh, I can tell you what. What I focus on, or what works for me, and maybe that will work for you. I certainly can't claim any scientific or professional knowledge of this, but I'll tell you what, what I try to, um, what I try to work with that might help, and might help you with this. Um, to me, the deferral of gratification is fundamentally about a memory of the future. Aha! What the hell is he talking about? Cue the Star Trek music. Well, what I mean by that is that to defer gratification, is to say that a future pleasure is better than a current pleasure, right? So, and there's two ways to do that, and these two are complementary. The first is to picture negative consequences of your actions, to have a memory of the future, or in a sense, to put yourself in the future thinking back on your action now, right? So, I mean, I've often wondered, you know, somebody who's been a chain smoker, Peter Zowski, who was a big radio personality up here in Canada, was a chain smoker right, his whole life. And I guess Ayn Rand was too. And Ayn Rand had to have a lung removed because it was cancerous. And Peter Zowski ended up dying a pretty horrible death of emphysema. And of course, when they think, when they get the diagnosis, like you're going to die or you're really sick or whatever, when they get the diagnosis... I mean, of course, they think back on their smoking, and they must 
obviously kick themselves to some degree, right? And so, in a sense, it's putting yourself in the future and thinking back on the decision that you're making at the moment, right? So, I mean, I want an iPad. I think they look really cool. Am I going to buy an iPad? I'm not going to buy an iPad, even though they look really cool. I'm not going to buy an iPad because I've put myself into the future and saying, okay, so I go out and I drop 600 or 700 bucks on an iPad, which I don't need for FDR. How am I going to feel about that in the future? Well, I'm going to feel anxious about it. I'm not going to enjoy it too much because I'm going to feel that uh, it was uh, a wasteful extravagance that I didn't really need. I couldn't really justify it in terms of um, what I do for a living. And so I'm going to feel bad about it. I'm going to feel anxious about it. And every time I look at it, I'm going to feel like, oh, man, I should have saved that money. Right? Yeah. My two big donation sources are in the middle of a recession and it's, uh, you know, it's challenging. And so, so I just, I'm not going to feel good about it. And so it's putting yourself in the future and thinking back on your decision. That's sort of the one thing that, uh, uh, that I have found to be useful. And that's sort of the negative consequence argument. So, you know, put yourself in the future when you're, when you're 70, um, or 60 and you get the diagnosis of lung cancer where you look back and say, damn, I should put those cigarettes down, right? And that's, um, you know, oh, we've all had that feeling, you know, you, you've overeaten or you just, you had, you know, the big dessert and you didn't think you were going to finish it. And then you look down, your plate's empty and you feel like, Bleh. well, you prevent yourself from doing that, right? By thinking about the future, about the feeling you're going to have when the deed is done, right? So, um, we all do this in terms of I me. Mean, who likes to floss? Nobody, right? But I think about how much I'd kick myself. I can still have my wisdom teeth, right? I'm one of, one of the few people. Who um, who still has his wisdom teeth in his forties? So I have to be very careful with my oral hygiene because you know they're uh, they're tough to clean. My tusks, and so like I don't want to floss. But then you think, oh man, well how much fun would it be to get my wisdom teeth taken out, right? Um, especially you know when you're a stay-at-home dad, it's not exactly easy or convenient to to have that situation. And I say, well, I don't have time to floss. Well, <laughs> if I don't have time to floss, how am I going to have time to get my wisdom teeth taken out should they get infected or something like that, right? So that's, um, uh, that's another way of doing it. And the other thing, of course, is to think of the positive consequences, right? So um, if I don't spend my money uh, on an iPad and a bunch of other things that I would buy otherwise, then maybe I can, um, you know, buy something for FDR. Or maybe I can, uh, you know, go on a vacation, uh, with, with my wife and daughter, which I will remember for the rest of my life. Days kind of blur, you know, particularly when you work at home. But if you have uh, uh, a vacation, you, you really it really stands out, and that's kind of cool. I think that's what they're for. They're these bookmarks in your life so that you don't flick through the pages too quickly. And I would rather think of that, right? And so, it would you know, in, in six months or a year, or I sometimes even think five years. So in five years, would I rather have an obsolete iPod gathering dust in the basement or iPad, or would I uh, rather have the memory of a great vacation, which, you know, and pictures and, and all of that, right? Well, I would rather have uh, the vacation memory than some obsolete piece of technology that, you know, is dead and gone like all the other obsolete pieces of technology that have passed through my life. So that would be, um, uh, that would be my uh, way of, of trying to figure these things out. And, and it's, you know, to some degree, it's a cost benefit, right? So like the air conditioning in my car, my 12 year old car has been out for a couple of years and, uh, I was going to go get it repaired, but we couldn't get a hold of a secondhand part. And so it's like, 
1600 bucks to get the air conditioning in my Volvo repaired. Well, <clears throat> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. Um, I'll, I'll sweat a little, you know, um, because I would rather keep that money. I'd rather put it into Isabella's college fund or, you know, do, you know, just put it in the bank or, or do something, uh, buy food with it or whatever. Uh, just because I was sort of sitting there and say, well, it's nice to have some air conditioning, but man, there's a $1,600 hole in, uh, in my bank account because of that. So, uh, I think the deferral of gratification is just putting yourself in the future uh, in a, a month or a, a year and thinking, well, um, how, how am I going to feel about the decision that I'm making in the future? And I, like, I think of that too. I think of, ah, I'd really like to do a podcast or I'd really like to do a video, but my daughter's up and, you know, I think, well, what am I going to think in the future? Am I going to think, well, it really made a big difference going from 1650 to 1651 podcasts, right? As opposed to spending an hour or two with my daughter, which I will, you know, usually remember, uh, for forever. So, I think that's, uh, that's the kind of stuff like in the future, what are we going to think? You know, in the future, I'm going to think back Well, she was only young once and, um, you know, I didn't want to miss it by working too, too much. And so I will defer the pleasure of doing a podcast uh, for the sake of spending time with my daughter, which of course is also a pleasure because in the future, I won't care that I went from 1650 to 1651 podcasts, but I will care that I spent quality time with my daughter. So. That's uh, uh, that's my suggestion about how to defer gratification, and it's something that we all wrestle with. And there's no there's no clear and easy answer, and it's going to change throughout your life. So uh, that's my uh, uh, those are my suggestions, and I hope that they're I uh, hope that they're helpful. All right. Well, I think unless anybody has a yearning burning, uh, I have. Uh, I'm just getting over a bit of a sore throat, though. I didn't actually I didn't actually get a cold, which is kind of nice. Uh, Steph, how can I stop wanting to change others and wanting them to see reality and be more philosophical? <laughs> nice, a nice. Um, it's not an '80s Volvo. <laughs> it's not that old. It's a '98. Um, let's see here. Oh, it's a good question. How can I stop wanting to change others and wanting them to see reality and be more philosophical? I can't believe you're asking me of all people that. Quit my career. Yell at people in, in my room. Um, no, it's 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 a great question, and there's no easy answer to that one either. Uh, I will say this though, that um, if you are trying to change people who won't change, you are not being philosophical. Because being philosophical is about accepting reality and accepting truth. And if the truth is that people aren't going to change, particular people in your life, then to reject that and to continue to try to change them is to fall into their trap of ignoring the truth, right? If you're trying to change someone, it's because they believe something that is false and you want them to believe something that is true. But if you believe that they can change or you act as if they can change when they can't change, then it's you who are believing something false and rejecting something that is true, which is that they can't change, right? So it's always to start with yourself and to look at your own relationship to reality, to objectivity, to the evidence, to rational empiricism, and uh, you certainly can't say to someone, believe the truth. I'm going to keep trying to get you to believe the truth when they obviously don't want to because you're rejecting a truth in order to try and get someone to hold the truth as their highest value when you're not doing that yourself. So I think that's really, really important to, to focus on. Yeah, I mean, if you have a good relationship with yourself, 
Um, you know, it says Polonius says in Hamlet, right? Above, <clears throat> above all else, above all to thine own self be true, for then it shall follow as night follows day. Thou canst not be false to anyone. And, uh, it really all starts with the self and flows outward from there. So if you are trying to change others, rejection of reality while rejecting the reality that you can't change them in particular circumstances, then you're, you're falling prey to the same disease you're trying to cure. And so that would be my suggestion to keep focusing on that reality. Philosophy is not yet for everyone. It will be in the future, but not yet. Right now, it remains a very elite occupation. Great question. You people. <clears throat> Have I ever thought about doing a course for donations at the local college? No, but I am going to be speaking at uh, California University. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, teaching a course for donations at the local college. Um, I don't know about that. I mean, I could, but um, I'm not sure. I mean, if I could maybe get 20 or 30 or 50 people in a class, but compared to 40 or 50 or 60,000 people through podcasts and videos, it seems like, you know, why play a tiny local club when you could put out an album, right? I guess I could record that and, and put that out. But um, yeah, it's, it's a thought. It's a thought. Yes, I thought somebody would bring that up. It says, I'm confused when you're saying that a right doesn't exist, but UPB could validate the implication of a property right. So something is valid can also not exist. <laughs> well, the short answer is that, yes, something can be valid, which does not exist. Absolutely. Um, a um, uh, The scientific method is is valid, or a scientific theory can, is, can be valid even if it's only spoken, but it doesn't exist in reality in the same way that that which it describes, like a rock or a tree, exists in reality. Uh, I apologize for confusion about the word rights. Uh, it is... One of these challenges that I have, it's like the word soul, but but even worse, in that it's very difficult to have a conversation about ethics and politics without using the word right at all. It, it's almost impossible. Uh, and of course, since I prefer to use properties rather than rights, human beings have properties, not rights. I can't really say property properties, because that's just going to be really confusing to people, and they're going to think that I've fallen into some epileptic oompa loompa speak. So I do use the shortcut rights when it comes to property rights. I try not to use and try not to use it too much elsewhere, just because people know what you're talking about when you talk about property rights, but they wouldn't know about UPB theories of property validity, right? They just wouldn't know what. So I use that shorthand. It's just a a nod to convention, and um, that's. Uh, I'm sorry that it's it's confusing at times, but I yeah I don't believe that rights are a valid way of approaching things. <clears throat> In preparation. For my series on Ayn Rand, I've been reading and thinking about a bunch of Ayn Rand stuff. And, you know, once you stop falling for the rights thing, it becomes very difficult to listen to somebody talk about politics once you drop the nonsense about rights. I mean, because, you know, all Ayn Rand is doing is saying, well, a man has a right to do this and he doesn't have a right to do that. And he doesn't have, you know, and it's like, but that doesn't really mean anything. Uh, you're just using rights like a magic spell rather than an argument. Human beings do not possess rights any more than they possess a soul a ghost, or forehead unicorns. Um, I think we can say that uh, self-ownership conforms to UPB because you can't oppose self-ownership without asserting self-ownership, i.e. controlling your mouth to speak or your hand to write or something. So you can't reject self-ownership. Um, and 
you also can't have morality unless human beings are responsible for the effects of their actions, right? So if you see someone strangle someone else, and then you say, hey, you strangled that guy. And he said, no, I didn't do it. It was my hands. Well, we put the hands in jail, right? I mean, the human being has to be considered responsible for his or her actions. Uh, otherwise, there's no such thing as morality. And you can't criticize anyone for anything. And that's, you know, certainly that could be fine in theory, but I'll never hear from those people because the moment they try to correct me, they're saying that I'm responsible for my theories and I'm responsible for my actions. So if human beings are responsible for their actions, then we own that which we make as much as we own a dead body if we kill someone. You know, we are responsible, we have created, we own it. And so if we own ourselves, then we own the effects of our actions and we're responsible for them and that's how you get property rights out of that. Yes, I really do want to put out a series on, on Ayn Rand in, uh, in more detail. Um, it is, uh, it's time to bring that beast to light. But uh, I can't uh, promise a date. I will be doing the entire thing in a bad Ayn Rand accent, so I think you will enjoy it from that standpoint. All right, my friends, well, we have come to the end of our time together for this week, at least until I'm in the chat room again. So uh, thank you, everybody, so much for listening. It was nice to see uh, so many people. Uh, sorry, somebody, just one last question. I've had a possibility of getting an internship with a local congressman. Would it be moral for me to take part in such an internship, even though the congressman is part of the immoral government? Um... Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I wouldn't put that down to good or evil. You're not directly initiating force. Um, so I would not uh, put that down. I would say, you know, also, to be perfectly frank, if there were six million jobs awaiting you and you chose to get a job with a local congressman, I think that would be a different matter. But the economy is really tight these days. And if it's going to help you with your resume and it is going to help you uh, advance yourself in your life, I would... Uh, uh, I would definitely uh, uh, consider it for sure. But no, I don't think it's immoral. I don't think it's immoral. I mean, because if that's immoral, <clears throat> then I, I fail to see how, I mean, I, I, I walk on public roads. I, um, uh, the internet was developed by the government. Um, <laughs> wireless technology was, I think, sometimes developed by the military. Um, so I can't use... Um, the internet, I can't use public roads. The water is delivered to me by the government. I can't use that. I mean, I just don't want to get involved in those kinds of things because, you know, we have to live and I don't want my moral choices to be dictated or determined by the system that I oppose. Uh, I didn't invent it. I didn't create it. I'm not morally responsible for the existence of the state or of religion. So, um, given that there's no clear line, I would certainly not recommend going into the army and becoming a cop, because that's using the initiation of force directly. And that, to me, is a very different situation. But um, this amorphous stuff, you know, picking some of the crumbs off the king's table, uh, I don't think that we really have to worry about that. Oh, yeah, Mark Stevens. I enjoyed doing my shows with him, but um, we just, we have a very different audience. Uh, we have a very different approach. Uh, he's very much into, I got a ticket. And that's bad. And I think that's a great thing to help people with. Uh, it's not something that I can really contribute much to. And I think that um, it didn't really uh, work out uh, too well in terms of what I was able to contribute to his listeners who had, you know, all very interesting and useful things to talk about, just not interesting or useful things that I could have much contribution to. So I like Mark. Um, I saw him last year uh, at New Hampshire. And uh, it was nice to meet him face to face. And I think I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm very sure that uh, we will be meeting in Hollywood at uh, Libertopia. And I hope that you're aware of this. If you've made it to the end, I'm sure you are. But uh, the Libertopia, where I am a keynote speaker alongside some 
really smart and great people who will be fun to, to chat with and listen to. Uh, it is now in Hollywood, California, October 15th to 17th. That's libertopia.org. So I hope that you will, um, yeah, and if you're confused about, oh, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, I hope that you will come, uh, to, uh, to join and just to remind you Labor Day weekend is the free listener barbecue. So I hope that you will be able to come up here and, uh, meet some other listeners and have some great conversations and maybe we'll do a little karaoke. So have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for your enthusiasm. You might want to check out. I'm quite pleased with the, um, the new video, the story of your enslavement. And uh, uh, it's getting some pretty good views. If you could uh, go out and um, post it around, I would hugely appreciate it. And um, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. And I will talk to you soon.